Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. It's been a few weeks, guys. Thanks for sticking with me. Uh, happy to be jumping back into it feet first. Uh, with me today on the show, 16-year law, law enforcement veteran, uh, founder of Black Mask Divers, uh, public safety diver extraordinaire. Uh, his resume makes Jason Bourne look like a bitch. With me today, Lieutenant Kevin Kemmerling of the Tulare County Sheriff's Office. LT, how you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you, Kev? Good, good. You are my first telephone interview, uh, so this is a whole new, whole new way uh, of doing things. But I think let's just take the water wings off and jump into the deep end. What do you say? Uh, perfect. And you know, as you uh, as your show widens and you get more successful, next time you can fly me out. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I think, and we're gonna we're gonna get into it a little bit later. But I think I actually need to come your direction so that you can attempt to drown me. Um, let's do that in, in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> so that would be a, that would be a, a hell of a life experience for me. So, and then, you know, maybe I'll get rescued by a mermaid or something like that. Don't tell my wife I said that. I like it. I like it. It's like Vegas without all the shiny lights. Well, I guess you, you go towards a particular light until your, uh, dive soup smacks the shit out of you and brings you back into the, into consciousness. So, yep. Uh, today's nonprofit shout out. This one comes from, uh, from Kev is the Ranger Road, uh, nonprofit. So Ranger Road is a, a nonprofit charity, uh, providing veterans the necessary tools to be successful during the cr crucial transition from military to civilian life. Uh, it was founded by army ranger, MMA fighter, and police officer, Mikhail Venikov. Ranger Road believes the bond and camaraderie created in the military is truly special and an experience only those who have served are able to grasp an understanding of. For more information, see rangerroad.org. Uh, Kev, what, what brought you to Ranger Road? How'd you come to find out about them? You know, it was interesting. I had a couple customers that we started communicating with who are both pro divers, and they do a lot of work with Ranger Road on the diving side, bringing veterans into that world um, when they're coming back from service and doing some rehab and some other stuff. And it just kind of fascinated me, the work that they did. So I did a little bit more research on the kale and the company, and it's something that, you know, Hopefully we can get involved with black mass divers and even me personally as a um, instructor one of these days, but they just do fantastic work and deserve as much recognition as they can get. Absolutely. Anybody who's willing to, uh, to go to bat for our veterans, uh, is certainly greatly, greatly appreciated, uh, at least on this yeah. podcast, man. And, uh, hopefully one of these days I get, get, uh, get in contact with Mikhail and get him on the podcast too, and let him, uh, talk about Ranger road and, and his transition. One thing that, that I've talked to a lot of guys that I work with, um, and female officers as well as uh, who served in the military is similarities and differences. And it seems to be that those high stress events uh, that we encounter as, you know, patrol officers or the high stress, you know, uh, a whole lot's riding on this, you know, homicide investigation or whatever the case may be that uh, the, the camaraderie and the, the bonds that are forged in those uh, seem to be very similar to, uh, to what veterans experience when, when they're put in high stress situations. So, um, it's, yeah, it, it, keep going. No, no, I was just gonna say it, it, it certainly seems like a good, uh, parallel, uh, with public safety and the military, uh, to, to have somebody come on here and, and talk about that. Yeah, without a doubt, there's nothing that will bond a team more and produce culture and synergy and cohesion amongst those groups than a critical incident. And, you know, we see it in law enforcement. Obviously, we see it in the military. Um, we talk about that cliche, the thin blue line, the thin green line, the thin red line. But it's so true. It's, it's this kind of stuff that brings brotherhood together. And it, it's something you got to cherish in your organizations and your teams. 
yeah. really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Um, well, to, to dive into uh, to your interview here, I ask everybody the same first question. I also ask everybody the same final question, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, your first question is that you can have a drink with anybody, uh, live or dead. Who is it and why? And I'll throw this one in there. What do you drink? Uh, everything. <laughs> just put it in front of me. If it's liquid, it's going down. <laughs> Everything. So, you know, a lot of your guests have given the same answer and I have to do it as well, which is going to be my grandfather. Um, he passed away when I was about 17, when I was still running amok, ditching school and diving and climbing and surfing all the time. But he was a World War II veteran. And, and again, we, we've heard this before on your show, part of that greatest generation and it's so true he was a cb in the south pacific and came back first generation italian came back from the war and built a multi-million dollar company from scratch going to night school and just rose up through the ranks to end up leading that company um such an amazing man and such a pivotal part of our family and i would just love to hang out with him and show him what i've become and just talk to him again. It's just amazing, man. Man, I've, I've got no doubt that he'd look at your your 16-year career, and especially since he was a, a Navy veteran and a CB, uh, and, and the direction that your career was taken with uh, with Swift Water and Dive Rescue uh, and Recovery Operations. I'm I'm fairly certain Kev, he'd be extremely proud of you. Yeah, it'd be really neat to talk to him again. Um, so, just kind of, we're just going to start at the beginning, man. What, what, uh, Rather, who is Kevin Kimmerling? So I grew up in, in West Los Angeles in kind of uh, the nice part of town, so to speak, more affluent part of L.A., and just kind of grew up surfing and diving and, and doing that whole cliche California kid thing. Um, kind of running amok, kind of a bad kid, so to speak. Didn't have a whole lot of direction, um, so I just did the fun stuff, right? You ditch school, you go surfing, you start rock climbing at a young age and start mountaineering and live out of your truck for a bunch of years. And you get to a point in your early twenties where you kind of realize, Hey, I got to start doing something. So I ended up getting into commercial real estate in Los Angeles and, and representing some, ended up representing some pretty big NYSE traded, um, REITs, which is a real estate investment trust. And, um, was pretty successful, had a really good time. Uh, we did a lot of com street commercial retail and redevelopment. Uh, if anybody's familiar with the Third um, Street Promenade down in Santa Monica, we redeveloped a lot of that property. But I wasn't fulfilled in what I was doing. It was a corporate gig and it just wasn't for me. And I found that every time that I wasn't at the office, I was out riding my mountain bike or in the water or doing something. So there was an opportunity that came up in our family where we were able to move out of LA because it was time, you know, it would take me over an hour to go four miles from my office to my house every day. And it's just, the traffic was ridiculous. The people were ridiculous. Trust me when I say it's gotten worse. And it was <laughs> that's, that's just good, good old time. Los Angeles for you. <laughs> oh yeah. It's a wonderful place. Um, it was time to move up to the hills. So we had always had a ranch up in, um, a place called Springville, which is in Tulare County, which is in the foothills of the giant Sequoia National Monument. Really beautiful place. And we ended up buying a bed and breakfast hotel and restaurant that had been closed for a bunch of years, but, but really famous within the community. And totally remodeled that thing. And it was really cool. 
and it allowed me to start to build on my passion of climbing and mountaineering and doing some other stuff. So I was finally able to join a volunteer search and rescue team through the Tulare County Sheriff's Office. And that was just a game changer for me. Um, something I'd always wanted to do, totally passionate about it. Um, got on the team, started hanging out with all these great deputies on the team. Um, at the time, there was about 15 sworn deputies on the team, and there was only about three of us volunteers that were kind of brought in under their wing, which was kind of neat. Um, ended up becoming the first technical rescue instructor who was a civilian for the county team. And then in about 1999, we um, formed a 501C and started a group called Sequoia Mountain Rescue, which was the volunteer team attached to the sheriff's department. And it was kind of cool because it was the first time that it was only backcountry skiers and mountaineers and climbers. And we kind of became the technical arm for them. And that team is now really big. They're still going strong. Um, they've got a, probably about 25 members. Our sworn team has about 25 members and one of the biggest teams in the state as well. So that's kind of the history there. Because of that brotherhood that we just talked about, um, I totally fell in love with the sheriff's department and the guys there and put myself to the academy in 2003, graduated, and soon after that had a job with the sheriff's department and have been doing SAR and dive and all that stuff ever since. So that's kind of how I got into law enforcement, kind of a backdoor, but um, really fulfilling. It's been great. Well, and you, and you got there in the end, right? I mean, it's everybody's got their own way that they, I mean, some, some folks that was all they wanted to do from the time they were, they were little, you know, mom or dad or uncle or whoever was, was in it. And then, uh, you know, other people sort of managed to, to fall into it as it were and become extremely successful. Now, when you, when you went through the Academy, um, and you came out, you went into detentions, correct? Yeah. So, um, and I started late, so I was 32 when I went through the academy, um, so I wasn't some young pup, um, and that's one of the things that has always motivated me to push hard and to achieve and succeed in this career because it, I know that it's never going to be a 30-year career for me. Um, but yeah, we started off in the academy, or excuse me, in the um, in detentions, and usually at that time, detentions and operations were one big division, so everybody went to jail. And there were guys that had rides in there for like five, six years. Um, I got lucky because of the connections I had made with the administration and lieutenants and stuff being in SAR. Again, being in a special team gets you noticed, right? Right. Um, so I, I was lucky and I only did a year and a half in detentions. And I got bumped out to the dream job, which is a mountain resident deputy for my hometown of Springville. And I did about two years there, which was really cool. But that whole detentions thing, I'd love to be able to have all departments push some of their guys into detentions for a couple of years, not to keep them in there forever, but make that part of their pathway because you learn so much about the job when you get to spend some time indoors with those guys. Really important. Yeah, you, you. I think it's, I would say it's there where you probably, and having never worked in the jails, my, my agency didn't require, now they actually do. I think they send our... Uh, our officers in training, but they only do like two weeks. It's uh, yeah. it, it's it's basically it's almost a part of their post academy training. But they learn the system really well because we share a jail with an adjacent city, and a lot of the work that uh, rather like the computer work that we do is completely foreign 
uh, to, to my city. This is just not anything that we require. It's a completely different like software. Um, and so we get, uh, you know, the, these OITs that do a couple weeks in the jail. And then, I mean, shit, I, four years later, uh, versus me versus a, a new OIT who spent a couple weeks in the jail, they could probably book somebody in way faster than I can. And, and they, like you said, they learn a thing or two, um, you know, I would say being locked in an eight by 10 cell can occasionally bring out the animal in people. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a whole different, whole different ball game. Uh, once you're in, once you're in that jail. Yeah. And you learn how to talk to these guys. Um, you know, we, we always talk about, they demand respect on the street and we demand respect on the street. And it, it, it's a two way road there. Um, you have to learn how to dialogue with them and get them to do what you need them to do without having to be heavy handed all the time. And, and that's a, one of those places you learn that, you know, I worked in a working unit. So we had like, I don't know, 60 guys in my unit and it was all open style dormitory because these guys would go off and they'd work the kitchens or they'd work the DRC program or wherever they'd go during the day. So it was like me and them on the yard and it just can be a sobering experience when you first walk into an environment like that. It's like, man, what am I going to fucking do if this kicks off today? Yeah. Yeah. Span of control doesn't mean a damn thing on the yard. You're, nope. you're, you're 40 to one out there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, yeah, you learn and, and you get sized up. You sure. Know? Sure. These guys come in and the shot callers like, okay, here's the new young guy, um, being six, four and a pretty large guy with a menacing face. I didn't get in a lot of fights, but the opportunity was always there. Yeah. That's one thing that, that I found. And, uh, well, I, I mean, I was taught fairly quickly is that whole, you know, from a gang detective at, at my agency is that respect is indeed a two way street. And you'd be surprised how being cool with people, uh, you know, sure. They may have just committed, you know, X, Y, Z crime. But you just talk to them like another human. Uh, you don't have to, yes, sir. No, sir. Everybody, uh, God knows that some people don't respond to that. Um, you know, but you don't need to motherfucker everybody that you come across either. Don't, don't let that badge sit heavy on your chest to where you think that you're hot shit and you can't be touched because they'll touch you. Oh yeah, you can. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's all about learning how to read people and diffusing situations. So, and then, uh, from, from detention, you went to, uh, the mountain resident, uh, patrol. Is that, you said it was just within your area. Were you the only deputy for your kind of community? Yeah. So, um, we're, we're tucked up right at the base of the Southern Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, we're just at the bottom of the, um, great Western divide. And we have a, the, the jurisdiction of that patrol beat is the largest mountain resident deputy beat and largest populated in our County. So we probably had about six, thousand residents in our mountain communities and um it's a pretty big area geographically but yeah i was the only guy i had another beat partner 23 adam who was the guy on top of the hill in a a smaller community so you know we had a good time but it was one of those things where i think that being a little bit longer in the tooth coming into this business i had a little bit more maturity and it allowed me to get that spot which was kind of highly coveted um you know, you combine that with the search and rescue experience because we would always see the resident deputies are always the first responders when somebody goes missing or we have a SAR call. Um, so it kind of made sense to, for the department to put me there. And it was totally an honor to get that spot because, you know, I didn't, the only patrol time I really did was 
through FTO when I got out on the street. Um, so it was really cool. It was fun. I, I am uh, reminded of the meme about county sheriff's deputies or, and, and versus us city boys and, you know, city cops call for backup and the whole fucking SWAT team shows up and county sheriff's uh-huh. deputies call for backup. And it's like, well, you got that rock right there, that jar of dirt and uh, have at it. So <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, going back to that gift of gab and officer presence, it's important because there were times where my backup was two hours away. I, just, I can't even fathom coming. what I, I hate it when my backup is two minutes away. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we have these, these County cops that are always doing a good job. Um, but they transition to a PD and man, they always get in trouble right away because they're handling DV calls of service and what is just totally normal bread and butter run of the mill calls for us. We do them by ourselves, go to a city and there's four guys there. And you're not even allowed to get out of your car until you have backup there. Doesn't really happen when you're wearing green and tan. Right. Right. Yeah. We've got, I mean, we've got places that we don't go without two or three of us just because, oh, hey, this person's been known to, to fight or they're an alcoholic or they use meth or they got, they own guns. And so, and you'll see an entire patrol team on one call. Uh, whereas you just don't have that luxury out, out in the County. Um, I mean, I've been, only only a handful of times have I ever been asked to go and back up a, a deputy out here uh, in Maricopa County. But uh, yeah, I, <laughs> so I've always I tip my hat to, to sheriff's deputies just because of the uh, uh, the manner in which you guys are forced to work. Yeah, it, it's different. And we've got just like you guys in Arizona, we have we have our reservation, which is uh, always an interesting place to end up on calls for service. Yeah, at the time when I started, anytime you'd go up on the res, it was still a two car call every, all the time. Um, pot shots still being taken at cop cars and always getting into leg bales and fights. And it's calmed down a little bit, but there's still that element up there. Yeah, I can I can remember one one time we ended up. Uh, it wasn't just in case IA is listening to this. It wasn't a pursuit <laughs> per se. Uh, there were some detectives who requested patrol support and we ended up driving very quickly, uh, on the reservation with due regard for public safety, of course. Um, but, but our maps Kev, I, I sitting there like, well, hang on, I've got to get my phone out to put Apple maps on because I have no idea where the hell I, I mean, we were going down dirt roads that were all washed out and there was a highway patrol guy with us who nearly dumped his, uh, explorer into a, into a wash because the roads were so shitty and and yeah we had just and then it got dark and you're like oh uh well i could see the lights up there to the north that's more than likely my city and oh that's really far away i'm not sure how i feel about that yeah and back in the day one of the other fun parts of our reservation was radio silence that made it even better so it wasn't until man it's probably 10 years ago we got our first repeater on the reservation so we could actually hear and talk to dispatch which was kind of a cool thing uh, yeah, I have no idea. I mean, we get we got some dead zones uh, in the precinct that I was was working in when I was on patrol. Um, I say I say was like it was that long ago, two weeks ago when I was on patrol. I've now moved into investigations, but their solution was to give us these long whip antennas for our portables, where I'm pretty sure I could speak to the space station if I needed to. So, <laughs> which which don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for it. But they're like nine and a half inches long and the where the where it sits on my uh my outer vest carrier if i look down too fast to change my radio channel i'll poke myself in the eye with it so yes <laughs> uh, but hey you know what the price i pay to be able to to keep uh keep those dispatchers uh, uh able to hear me so certainly thankful for that 
Um, thankful for our dispatchers. hundred percent. I'm still working on trying to convince a couple of our dispatchers to come on the show. Um, uh, I think it's more or less just a scheduling issue really. But, uh, one of them, I, you know, I don't know that people want to hear from me. Like, no, I think people are kind of curious as to what, like what it's like being a dispatcher. So, uh, hopefully, oh, yeah. hopefully one of these days we'll, uh, we'll get a dispatcher on now. So you've been in law enforcement for 16 years. Um, you know, I, I reached out to you through uh, black mask divers, which we're going to, we're going to dive headlong into that. And I do want to spend a decent amount of time talking to that, but how long were you diving before bef- that was part of your, your life before you were uh, a police officer? What, what led you to get in the water for the first time? So, you know, every year I would find a new like camp to go to when I was a kid and they were always up in the mountains or wherever. And I would spend two weeks up there and get away from everybody and, and have really a good time. And one year when I was like 13, I found this camp called Simi and it's the Catalina Island Marine Institute. And it used to be part of the Wrigley campus. It's in Toyon Bay on kind of the, what is it? I guess the West side of the Island. Um, and it was, it was first run by USC and then it was a private boarding school and then it turned into like a biology camp for kids. And for the, for two years I would go out there every summer and spend like three weeks. And that's where I first started diving when I was 13 years old, totally fell in love with it. It was like, this is for me 1000%. And, you know, went back the next year and had my advanced deep dive certs all done by 14. And it's something that's always stuck with me. Just love being in the water. I can remember, uh, I, I'm actually, uh, actually surprised to hear you talk about see me. It's a blast from the past because I think I did that in like sixth grade. I was 12. Um, and so we just snorkeled, but I can, I mean, you, you snorkel out of that, uh, out of that bay right there. And that is some of the clearest water that, yeah, that I, and having grown up a little bit in Southern California, you know, I was, but I was always Huntington beach, Newport beach, and it wasn't really out snorkeling or, or diving per se, but I mean, just looking 60 to 80 feet down, seeing all the Garibaldi and, uh, you know, the, the other fish that are down there. I'm no Marine expert, but I do remember the Nemo fish. Uh, well, he's a clownfish. So <laughs> see, I'm even screwing that up. I got Apparently I need to go back to, uh, to see me, see if they have an adult course that I can take, but, uh, <laughs> I'll go with you. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. yeah like, we'll just be sitting in those little desks, you know, <laughs> be like, uh, be like that Adam Sandler movie when he goes back to kindergarten or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I, I can remember uh, going out there. Uh, I would say that I, I got started diving too late, man. I didn't jump in until I was about 20 or 21. And I can count on one hand the number of dives that I've done. I'm 30 now, so I got to I gotta jump back into it. But wouldn't you know it, in the state of Arizona, there's just not a whole lot to dive. There's there's lakes where you can practice your underwater navigation really well because you can't see anything. Um, and that's, that's about it. I can only think of maybe two agencies... Uh, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office being one of them that have a dive rescue unit. Is that obviously California being a coastal state, but even where you're at, not necessarily near the coast, but you've got the the Sierras, you've got lakes and waterways. Is Are dive rescue teams fairly common, even with those inland counties? Yeah, pretty much um, in California. So in California, search and rescue becomes the responsibility of the Sheriff's Office in all 58 counties. Um, all of that is managed through Cal OES mutual aid. So we have a really awesome, robust mutual aid program. So if there's a deficiency in one county of equipment or skill and there's a need, um, we get to travel 
all over the state to help other counties out if they've got something that kind of goes over their scope. Um, but yeah, pretty much every sheriff's department, almost everyone that I can think of has a some type of a dive team or a swift water team. Um, and we're and we're busy, you know. Um, California is a big state, a lot of recreation. Uh, our county is pretty huge. We're the seventh largest county in the state. Um, geographically, we're immense. We have the summit of Mount Whitney on the east side is in our county, which a lot of people don't even know. So, you know, it could take us, if we don't have aerial support, three hours to get to the other side of the Sierra Nevada, which still remains in Tulare County. Wow. that It's amazing. Yeah, I can't even, like, wrap my head around. Again, I mean, my, my city, I can drive from one end of the one end of the city to the other in about 20 minutes, whereas you've got uh, three hours, you know, unless you've got a helicopter to, to get you there. I worked for a patrol supervisor who can, uh, he worked, I forget what sheriff's department in California, but he remembered one time driving code, uh, emergency lights and sirens, uh, and it took him over an hour, even at emergency driving speeds to get where he needed to get. So I yep. just been there, done that. can't even, can't even begin to, uh, to wrap my head around that. So what, um, with that, that mutual aid that you've got going on, um, how many operations, uh, is, is Tulare County's dive team involved in, uh, in a, in so a given year? You, so usually when we have a good water year, cause you know, most of our, um, busy season or our falling season, we say is from Memorial day to labor day. And within that span of time, so it's pretty much just the spring and summer, we can generate between um, 20 and 30 responses, but it's all dependent on our snowpack. So if we have high water years, we have high rescue years. Um, with that, we probably travel throughout the state two to four times a year on top of that as well. So last year was pretty slow, but um, looking up at the Sierras today, a lot of the white stuff up there, and sure. we're hoping to have a pretty busy season. We'll see. Even even where I'm at uh, in in the good old Valley of the Sun, I can look out my window and see some snow on some mountains right now, which is a very foreign uh, sight to me. But I got to imagine that that when uh, anybody on your dive team looks out their windows and sees all that snow, they know it's better better check your gear because it's going to be busy. Yeah, we start ramping up early, so you know every all our divers get their full med checks um, by the docks. Uh, usually in April, we do all of our physical fitness swim tests and get all that stuff out of the way. And, you know, by Memorial Day, we're ready to rock and roll. What all goes that you mentioned physical fitness tests and, and medicals, what all goes in? Somebody joins Tulare County Sheriff's Office uh, and, and they come to find out that uh, the guys with the, uh, well, the men and women with the biggest balls in the bunch is the, uh, the dive rescue unit. And they want to see if they could test their metal. What all goes into becoming a rescue diver? So it's a really long process, at least it is in, in our county, and it's probably my fault. My guys always joke that I take all the fun out of diving. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but there's a reason for that, which is that I expect them to come home after every mission or after every training. So we put a lot of into it. And, it, you know, it all starts with the selection process. Um, that's probably the most important part is maintaining our culture on the team and our synergy and our cohesion. Um, super important that we get the right people. They have to have the right attitude. They have to have that extreme ownership mindset. Um, and they have to be trainable. I can teach you how to drive, how to dive. I can teach you how to read a river and everything you need to know about hydrology. But if you don't mesh with the team, we have problems. Um, so they go through a pretty intensive 
interview process. Um, you know, it's like any other agency. I would assume that they submit an interest memo, go through interview process, and then we have pool day where we put them through an intro to scuba if they have no scuba experience because we do all of our own training in-house. Um, and then we put them in through the IATERS uh, swim test, which is what our guys do every year, which is kind of like a national swim standard. It's based on a metabolic equivalent. So it's kind of like running an eight-minute mile, but it's all in the pool. Um, and then after that, we do some team-building exercises, which is a little bit more like sharks and dolphins and a little bit of hazing. Well, hazing's the wrong word. A little bit of character development. How about that? <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that again. Yeah, just, we'll go just with to that. Keep IA, just to keep IA happy, we'll go with that. Uh, no, we're not. We're not hazing anybody. Well, didn't you try to drown that guy? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's more for his safety. So <laughs> yeah. Um, and then what's unique on on this team, and it's different from all of our other specialty teams in our department, is we go through another oral inter interview with all of my senior divers, and I'm not even part of that interview process. It's my senior guys because they're the ones that are picking the new guys to carry the torch of this team. Um, everything gets scored, and the guys bring it back to me with their recommendations, and we rock and roll. And sometimes we can have 15 applicants. We'll lose half of them in the pool, and we'll walk away with maybe one or two. And if we still have four spots open and we only fill two, guess what? We leave them open because that synergy is more important to us as a unit than just some guy that's really badass with a big head and a big ego. Um, I can't train that out of somebody, but I can train you to be an effective operator. Well, if you start filling spots just for the sake of filling spots, I think it degrades the final quality of, of the product, uh, which, in this case, which in this case is people that are saving lives or uh as as is said on on the black bass divers website is bringing these these victims home to their families that's yeah that's not something that can be taken lightly and i'm, I'm absolutely uh, uh with you on that one i mean you you can't just get people in there for the sake of oh no we're we're fully staffed yeah don't worry about it we're, we're good yeah um you know even in in all special operations you know i've been in swat before and um I would rather take seven pipe hitters than 15 mediocre operators. Absolutely. All day long. Yeah. That, that closely mirrors, I forget who's, I actually just saw this quote. It was like a very, very close to that. I'd, I'd, I'd rather take, you know, seven studs than a hundred assholes or something along those lines, uh, said by, by some special forces, uh, commanding officer, I think in, in like Vietnam, but no, I'm right there with you now with your, with your time on SWAT, I mean, so you're no, you're no, uh, no stranger to a high degree of training. Uh, do you think there's more stress? And this isn't to try and, you know, I'm not trying to piss off any of the, the SWAT operators listening, but do you think there's more stress uh, with with dive proficiency and, and, and doing the swift water rescue than there was on SWAT ops? All day long. <coughs> um. Waterborne operations are some of the scariest things that law enforcement and fire and military do. Um, there's nothing that will snatch the life out of you faster than water. And you, the reason's pretty simple. You can't hold your breath. So we can exfil or retreat back into a bearcat. We can find cover and concealment in a SWAT operation. 
we can do a surrounding call out. There's a lot of things that can happen, but in when you're in the water, whether you're doing surface operations and pumping swift water, or you're doing a dive operation in total blackout conditions, which pretty much all inland dive operations are, uh, it's scary and it's spooky. And if you don't have your shit wired tight and you start getting stressed out and that panic starts to build, that's where we start losing divers and, and water operators. They get stressed out. They have a panic incident and it just keeps going and building and building and if we don't have a drowning we'll probably have a dry drowning which is a cardiac event and that's where we lose probably one to two divers throughout the united states every year well and it would just that statistic alone is is scary because it's um i mean it's like you said you can't you can't just uh just walk away from the lake right the that lake is going to to keep you as long as it wants you um yep yeah, I know. I was I was just curious to get your take on that. I myself have come close to drowning on a dive before because I was a dumbass. Um, like no no two ways about it. Uh, I'd never uh, done a wreck dive before. I'd had maybe four or five dives under my belt, and they were all inland. And first time I'm out off the coast of Maui, uh, get down like 97 feet uh, to this fishing trawler that they sunk to create a reef and i was like well this is the coolest thing i've ever blah 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 blah. swim 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 oh shit i've got like uh like 300 psi left and i'm still 90 feet underwater yeah <laughs> and uh yep. uh I, and that that panic i my grandfather was a udt frogman um and uh unfortunately passed away uh very kind of similar you know i think i was 18 or 19 uh when he passed away but i swear to god he was talking to me while i was under there um like hand on a stack of bibles the whole reason that I survived that is because I started to panic and I swear he was in my head going, relax, you're going to be fine. You're, you're an idiot, but you're going to be fine. <laughs> so yeah, I remember getting back on the boat and one of the, the, I think it was the the captain of this dive boat looks at my air gauge and he was like, Oh, cutting a little close there. Don't you think? Like, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's why we, you know, we beat into our guys. It's always stop, think, breathe and act. And that applies to everything that we do in law enforcement, everything we do in life. Um, but in the water, it really applies to that. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, I mean, you go, you even go back to the training and it's like, you. I mean, you, you, I would imagine that with the training, there's a little bit of that drown proofing element, uh, which if anybody's ever curious, would you say it's fairly, fairly close to like, uh, what was that discovery channel documentary on the seal teams when they're in pool comp phase and they tie their hands and feet together and you bob up and down in the water for a little while. Yeah, it's, it's almost identical to that it's not as severe as that is because you know in law enforcement we don't have the ability to hurt our guys and gals and we don't have the physical fitness that you typically see in the military and physical and um special operations teams and it's just the nature of the beast right we we all strive to be as um physically acute and as good as we can be but you know the schedule sucks and we don't always get to stay in the gym and do the things that we need to be doing. Um, so that's part of our culture as well, that we, we make sure that the guys are physically fit. We make sure that they have their medicals. We make sure that we beat the hell out of them in the pool, both, um, with drills like that, stress inoculation drills. Um, and then we do all of our training in blackout masks in the pool and that all starts in baby steps. So when they get into real black water environments, they can literally say, Hey, been there, done that. So nobody goes into a real operation until they've done it in the pool. They've done it in the pool blacked out. They've done it in blackwater training. 
Well, and the, I once heard said that the pool is the equalizer, and that wasn't really made. I took, I've taken a water swim-based proficiency test, like a physical fitness test, uh, once on top of, you know, that I, I could run, I could do push-ups and sit-ups, and I could swim, but I'd never try to do all those things at the same exact time, uh, and, and it was an ass-kicker. Um, and then just on top of that, your stress inoculation, I, you got to be, I would say that, uh, to all the public safety divers listening to this, go ahead and pat yourselves on the back. Cause you're all a bunch of studs. So. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are, um, but it takes all that training to get there. Um, and it has to be, you know, it has to be realistic and it, it has nothing to do with hazing. Like we kind of talked before, but it's gotta be, it's got to be really serious and it's got to push them to a point where they are out of their comfort zone and super uncomfortable where they now are forced to think through a problem in a controlled environment. Right. Um, we, we did stress inoculation yesterday with the guys and um, even one of my seniors, when he got tackled underwater and got his face mask ripped off by two other guys, he came up after one of those drills and was like, that was serious as a heart attack. Yeah, I, I have never once even attempted to do anything like that. I can only only imagine what it would be like. I mean, our your your patty dive training uh, for the just the recreational diver. Obviously, it's uh, recreational diving is a little bit you know a little bit different uh, in that you're not you know you you don't really have a mission other than to be an underwater tourist um, if if that's what you're going for. But I do almost think that there should be a little bit more of that stress inoculation in just standard diving because it is way too easy. Like, like me being an idiot, it's way too easy to drown under there. So you can't just, yeah. you can't just bounce off the bottom of the ocean, you know, hundred feet down and, and come back up to the surface faster than your bubbles and expect to get away with it. So no, you have to have that mindset of self-reliance where you can self-rescue out of any situation you put yourself into. And I say that to all of my guys and gals at our department and any other departments that I go train, um, apply that to what you do. Even when you're in the patrol car, even when you're running investigations, whatever it is, have that self-awareness and that spatial recognition of what the hell is going on around you at all times. Right. Right. I had, uh, I was riding with being brand new to our investigations division. I have basically I'm on FTO again with, a. A couple senior detectives and uh, one of them had brought up something that that I wholeheartedly agree with is that it takes about five years to really become proficient, uh, you know, and and become, I mean, I don't necessarily want to use the word expert, but to become comfortable enough with yourself that you get into a situation and you can go, well, I've never been in this exact spot before, but I had something like it and I'm pretty sure I can get through it. Would you say that 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 is similar to diving or you, I mean, I would say that you're always a student. but to a certain mm-hmm. extent, you know, after a few years, do you find that, that your team is fairly, you know, everybody's fairly comfortable? Yeah. So a couple of years ago we had a, our, our team was super solid. They were one of the best teams in California. We still are, but we lost some of our senior divers to other agencies. So they went off to PD and that, that hurt us a lot because it, now we go into a growing team with new guys. And we'll get them there, but there's a deficiency of operational experience. And that's something that I I hold more value in than anything else. And operational experience trumps everything. You can read as many books as you want. You can think you're all schooled away and squared away. But until you've actually experienced that, especially in water operations, 
until you've actually breached your first door in SWAT, um, you haven't done shit. All right, it's all concepts up to that point. Even yep. even you can train and train and train and go through a shoot house ten thousand times, but if you've never actually gone into a, a house wondering if there's a person with a shotgun on the other side of the door, I mean, it's just it's just a concept. Yeah. So I remember my first month in SWAT when I was a young detective pup, and I hadn't even been to SWAT school yet, and totally green. We did our first, and those days it was all breach and go. Everything was a dynamic entry. We didn't do any surrounding call out. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I remember my very first entry, I was like way in the back of the stack. Um, I was just a hands guy and it was literally, Hey, you got to get your experience somehow. So just go in and do your thing. I'm like, okay, here we go. And I remember, I'll never forget it at the debrief standing around with all the guys were going round Robin of what went right, what went wrong, what we need to fix. And it was my turn to talk, being the brand new guy on the team. And somebody said, Kimberling, so what? What happened? And I literally looked at all the guys and said, I don't know what the fuck just went down. <laughs> it was a fucking blur. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that it would be. I mean, you know, I can remember the first time I ever, I can remember the first time I ever had to put handcuffs on somebody in the real world. I can remember the exact situation, the, the charges that I ended up hitting her with, and my hands were shaking. Cause it yeah. was, it was real. Right. Um, and, and the first time that I've ever had to, and we had a, a patrol call, uh, last year, um, where somebody had sent a, a 12 gauge round through the wall of an adjacent apartment. And we ended up breaching that door. I broke my favorite watch doing that. Uh, but that's hopefully going to get fixed this week. Cause I've waited long enough. It's been sitting on the nightstand, but, uh, uh, we breached that door. And I remember asking my, my patrol sergeant about it, uh, just right before shift change, she was going off to something else. I was uh, waiting to go up to the detective bureau and I asked her, uh, you know, was that like a genuinely frightening experience? And and she told me that, uh, yeah, I was, I was counting all of you who were in there to try and figure out how many families I was going to have to call. And I realized that even she had never even been in a situation like that. And so it was, yeah, it was a whole different ball game, man. And I can only imagine that when you're, when you're on that SWAT team and you're wanting to, uh, leave a good impression uh, with all these people that you've looked up to, right? Your mentors and uh, uh, your, your sort of, uh, dare I say, heroes on the department, right? Especially those of yep. those guys that have, you know, I joined the police department to go on to SWAT. And now here you are in front, standing in front of all of them. And you're like, well, that was different. So <laughs> that was different. And it was, and you said it perfectly because these are the same guys that round tabled me and said, we want Kimberling to be the new guy on the team. They're the ones that selected me to be on that team with them and have their six. And yeah, I'll, I'll just never forget. I felt like such a dork. Yeah. But here, but look, proved, look at you now, right? Proved myself. So it's okay. Because <laughs> right now there's a deputy who was doing pull comp yesterday. It was like, holy shit. Lieutenant Kemmerling was watching me. That was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting back into, uh, into, uh, the dive, uh, lifestyle as it is, um, with with some of your higher higher tempo years, are there any like notable uh, you know dive operations that come to your head and be like, oh yeah, there was that fucking time? There's a lot, man. Um, the one that kind of always I keep in the front of my mind is when we almost lost two of our guys in a swift water op, and it was a couple years ago, and it was a really high water year, like pumping year. Our our 
west side one of our west side west side rivers is the Thule. And that thing usually sits at about 500 CFS this year because, or that year, because of really high snowpack, it was pumping at about 2,000 CFS, which to give anybody a vision of that, it's class six swift water. Um, nothing would survive in it. A salmon wouldn't survive in it. Just gnarly, super technical. And these two girls had been up on the rocks, just kind of hanging out. They were both from college down south. And one of them slipped in, and the other one tried to go in after her. Um, they both drowned instantly in a place we call the gauntlet. And we call it that because it's sustained class six, and it drops about, it vertically drops almost a 1,000 feet in like a quarter mile. So it is just heinous. Um, they both pushed through there. Um, the one girl we were able to extricate with a helicopter um, that morning or that afternoon. And the second girl, because of where she was on the river and the flow at the time, um, we weren't able to recover her for a couple weeks. We pretty much knew where she was based on history and um, all the bodies that we pulled out of that stretch, but there's no way we could access her. Uh, one of the things we do in search and rescue is, you know, we don't quit. So we knew kind of where she was. So we did some hasty searching and then we started getting, doing some in-water searching with our boats and our swift water guys. Our swift water guys are all the same guys on the dive team. So we, we don't differentiate between that. You'll see a lot of teams that'll put their swift water guys with search and rescue, but we feel it's more beneficial to the operator to keep a water warrior in the water and don't give him other stuff to do. Um, so we had our boat in and we had it in a place that we now affectionately call Brad's Hole. It was a kind of a pour over, so almost like a low head dam. And we had the boat on high lines. We were probing to try to see if she was in one of these holes. And long story short, the boat creeped up into the pour over a little bit too far and did a complete yard sale. Um, Cole stayed with the boat. It was upside down at that point. He was holding on for dear life. Brad got flushed out and down into a second hole, which we called Brad's hole. And that thing's about 25 feet deep. It was recirculating him continually. So what people don't understand about white water is it's white because it's aerated. And aerated water is about 65% air. And even in a life jacket, you will not float in it. And it's going to recir recirculate you vertically. And that's what we call a keeper hole. So it sucks you up, sucks you down to the bottom and then it'll push you back up to the top. You may be able to get a breath. You may be able to get a handout, and it'll suck you right down to the bottom again. And this is a cycle that just continues until you find a way to get out of it. Usually you cannot. Um, we had our downstream safety going. Everybody was good. Everybody was highly trained. Everybody was um, hypersensitive to what was going on. One of my other guys got him a throw bag on, like, the third toss and got Brad out of that hole. Um, if he wasn't there and he didn't have the training that he had and we didn't have the regiment of high standards of training that he had, Brad would have drowned that day. Um, the force of the river was so strong that Ron, who threw him the throw bag, dislocated his shoulder Holy trying to shit. get him out. Popped it right out. Um, so that was like the scariest moment I've ever had in law enforcement or in 
search and rescue or waterborne operations because it, it happened that fast, gunshot fast, that we almost lost two of our guys who are some of our most highly trained guys. Something they've done a hundred times before, something that they've had that boat in that exact place at least 10 times before, knew what they were doing, but it just kind of happened. Um, not even being complacent, it just happens that fast. Um, so while it was the scariest thing that's ever happened to me in law enforcement, it was also the proudest moment because when these guys were done and we kind of dusted ourselves off and got our heart rates back down to a manageable level, um, they came back as a group in the debrief and said, nah, Sarge at the time, uh, we're, we want to keep going. Let's do this. Let's finish this mission. And I sent down, I sent Ron back down to the ER. My paramedic on the team had already put his shoulder back in, but I had to go put my administration hat on and get him medically cleared. He came back to the scene within an hour and was ready to get back on the team and say, what can I do? And I was just blown away. And that's what I, what I talk about when we use these phrases of extreme ownership. That's it right there. Well, and I imagine that there's got to be um, a certain level of pride, not only in that, hey, these are these are my guys, but like, hey, I get to work alongside these just awesome humans, right? And, yeah. And these guys that are willing to put their own shit aside and, and dust themselves off and, and get back at it. How long was uh, was Brad underwater for? Well, he was recycling. He was recircling in that um, keeper hole. So he he probably went down to the bottom of that thing at least three times. Wow. And you said it's like, yeah. and they're about 20, 25 feet deep. That that one was 25 feet deep. It's like being in a washing machine that just doesn't want to. You got it. Doesn't want to give up. It's, it's not going to let you go. Do you think that, I think when, you know, a lot of people look at like rescue diving uh, and I mean, even me, as as somebody who's spent a little bit of time diving, my thought always goes to the ocean. Do you think, is one more dangerous than the other, or is it just a different set of dangers? It's a different set of dangers, but I'm, I'm always going to say that inland diving is far more dangerous than ocean diving, only because you have zero visibility in pretty much every inland lake except for maybe Tahoe, which you can pretty much see everything because it's so clear and beautiful. Sure, sure. Um, all of our low-level lakes, they're full of debris, turbidity. Um, you get algae blooms, so they're always at levels where a really good day of diving is like three to five feet of visibility. Normally, it's about one foot of visibility. And in any of these lakes, especially in our county, you get below 20 feet, 25 feet, and it's lights out. Black as coal, the blackest environment you have ever seen in your life. Can't put and, your hand in front of your face type of thing. No, like old school diving, we used to take um, sandwich bags, plastic sandwich bags, Ziploc bags filled with water, put them in a pocket. So when we needed to see our gauges, this is a true story, take it out and put it between your mask and your computer so you could actually read it. Huh. There's That's a little, how black there's a little tip, tip and trick for you. I never even would have thought there's about that. There's a pro that. tip. A pro tip. You can't <laughs> just teach tip. that. You got to, <laughs> that's, that's experience speaking right there. That's awesome. I never, yeah, even, and, never even would have thought about that. Yeah. And, and what makes it even worse down there is a lot of these lakes are reservoirs, especially through California. So, um, dry seasons, they parts, parts of the lake will be dry. And what happens is they start growing trees. So, a lot of our lakes and a lot of the places where people drown, there's like 15 to 20 foot trees at the bottom of them 
this is the same stuff that the bodies drop into and this is the same stuff that our divers have to encounter when they're down there so now you're not only in the dark in the black in the cold by yourself now you have to contend with maybe there's a giant tree i'm going to get hung up and down here and um it's scary and it's real and that's why the training is so hard what uh is there even anything that you can i mean i imagine you can't just take a simple dive knife down with you what i mean how much gear are you guys taking down to the bottom so our, our SOP and kind of the industry standard SOP is a one diver down system. So we will have one diver on a comm line. He has a full face mask on, uh, full communications to his tender, and his umbilical is that communications line. If we are diving surface supplied air, which we do, all the air supplies on top, and that umbilical now also has his air line in it. Um, but he only carries his basically his cutting tools. So. That primary diver, we don't want to ever task overload our people. So our primary guy, his one job, he's the dope on the rope. He's supposed to listen to his tender and do his search pattern and find his target, nothing else. Um, so all he's got on his kit is his tank, BC, mask, his appropriate PPE dress, and then we call it the triangle, which is top of the head to the waist. So he'll have a knife on the left shoulder and a pair of EMT shears on the right shoulder. And that's how he's going to cut himself out of any entanglement he has. When he finds his target, he'll call back up to his tender, depending on what the objective is or what our target is. Um, he will either mark that target, come up to the surface, and we will send another diver down to help him if it's a body recovery. It's usually best to have two guys down there doing that body recovery. makes it easier. Um, but we'll just reevaluate at that point once we find what we're looking for. Now, one of the, uh, you mentioned uh, trees. You and I touched base a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, your agency had uh, a pretty decent amount of involvement in the Naya Rivera uh, recovery, correct? Yeah. Um, so that was one of those um, OES mutual aid call-outs, and we got brought in as a um, technical advisor to kind of come in and help with that search. And it wasn't because... They didn't have a good operation going on. It was, they had a couple hiccups um, in the event itself, which made it a very difficult search. And one of them was, and, and I can't get into a lot of details because there's a lot of lawsuits flying around right now still, but they didn't have a good point last scene of where she was. Um, lake Piru is a huge lake. It um, is, again, a reservoir. It was kind of a high-water year for them. They, they had begun filling the lake because they were doing a downstream project where they are going to flush out some of the riverbeds down there. So they wanted to fill the lake and then do a release. Well, the prior numerous years, there had been no water in the back of the lake, which is kind of our main search area. So we go back to, yeah, there's a bunch of 20, 30-foot trees in there. Some of them are sticking up above the water line. Um, but she's in there somewhere. So what we did when we got there is we kind of evaluated what they had done, saw what was going on. Um, the main request was for our side scan sonar and ROV. So we have a really pretty trick badass uh, ROV, such so as towfish that we can pretty much see anything with. Um, and then we have a submersible ROV, same ones that the Navy uses, which is really cool. Um, so we started drifting boats because um, 
the boat, basically what happened is when she drowned, the boat had drifted away and up into the narrows. Um, her little boy was still on it. And that's when they found the boat with him still on it, but they didn't know where the incident occurred. So we did a bunch of drift tests. We took similar houseboats out and threw them in the river in high probability areas where we thought she was. And there was only two places that we could routinely recreate that boat going from point A to point B. So that became our search area. And one of the problems with um, these kind of operations, if you don't have a witness that says, hey, the person drowned, little Timmy drowned right over there, um, we can mark that off and that becomes our, high pro our highest probability of area. We didn't really have that, so we had to kind of recreate it, and that took a little bit of time. Um, the second major problem with that whole search is all those trees. So our side scan sonar sees pretty much everything, but she was up in some of those trees, and all the side scan sonar sees is pretty much the tree. It doesn't differentiate between her or a body or a target and all the foliage that's down there. So we just see a big blob. Um, if she had drowned in a place where it was just sand and rocks, we would have had a pretty good signature and anything that we would have dove would have been to confirm that that was our target. Um, we only had one um, target that looked like a body at that search and uh, we, we couldn't confirmed that it was her and then LA County SO found it again and they actually put divers on it and it just ended up being a big log. And the, the, um, that side scan sonar just uh, in case people don't understand it's not taking like it's not taking digital photographs of what's down there it's sending out sound waves and then getting a reading based off of when the waves those sound waves bounce back is that more or less layman's correct? Yeah or perfect way to put it so think of it as um like you're you're looking at shoe tracks um, with a flashlight in the dark, okay. and you're using oblique lighting to kind of see anomalies. So it sounds out it sends out a search a uh, sonar wave, and it comes back to the computer, which is read into a graphic representation of what those sound waves were bouncing off of. So it's not just like hey, it's not like video where you can say hey, I can see everything on the bottom. You have to have your sonar guys totally dialed in both to the equipment and again, here we say that word again, operational experience, um, to be able to be that Jedi that's sitting in the chair looking at that screen, being able to pick out things that make sense and don't make sense and could be targets or there's no way that's a target. And so how, I mean, uh, and again, I, without getting too far into it, since I know, uh, uh, like you said, there's there's some still some issues uh, uh, legally going on with that one. Uh, from the time that your team finally got there to ultimately her recovery about how much time had had elapsed um i think that they were looking for at least 24 hours uh, when we got there we stayed five days on station and finally had to pull the plug because we just were not finding anything we knew the general area of where she was but we there's no way that we could see her with all those trees down there and sure enough we, we left on a sunday and it was we we took off probably about three o'clock in the afternoon and I got the call that she popped up in our highest probability of area um, that morning. So she had finally started enough of the decomp process to gas up a little bit and she came to the surface. Right. But she was right where we kind of knew she was going to be, but we just couldn't see her. 
And with, and with there's no reason to put a diver down there into that situation to just blindly search because you're going to get somebody hurt or killed. Right. Well, and you run across, um, I think it's fire departments have that, that, uh, like red, green, and, uh, and yellow, you know, we'll risk a lot to save a lot, but we're not going to risk lives to save things that are already lost. And as cold and calculating as that may seem, it's like you've said before, you got to send people home. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's we, got to be a tough call to make. It really is. And, and it's, it sucks for the guys because that was, that was like the only search that they had done in the past five years where they didn't have success. So it's really kind of a kick in the balls, but if when we deconstruct the scene and we go through the debriefing and we, we show what they did and how much integrity that they had in their search pattern and all the obstacles that we faced and not just us, but all the other counties that were there, there were four other counties there all on the water at the same time with similar equipment. And we were all coming up short. Um, it was just one of those just fucked up deals. Um, we have a lot of successes, but this one was just a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and I'm sure that, that anybody listening who had any involvement with that would agree that kicking the balls is probably the most accurate, uh, statement for, for how everybody, everybody felt on that one. Um, yeah, certainly though, I mean, your guys' effort, uh, ultimately uh, I would say assisted in, in at least getting an idea of, of where to, uh, to look, because it's like, I would imagine that underwater recovery operations, it's not a needle in a haystack. It's you're looking for what's he saying, saving private Ryan, a needle in a stack of needles. So, yep. That's, and, and you know, that's a saying that we always have in search and rescue, no car, no SAR. Um, where, where do you start looking in the mountains if you don't have a point last seen? Um, so we have two variables that we talk about probability of area. Is your target even there? And then probability of detection. If your target is there, what's the percentage that, you're actually going to be able to see it because of bottom contour, water turbidity, conditions, whatever else is going on. Um, so if we can't clear an area on a search pattern with like a 90, 80 to 90 percent probability of detection, we keep going until we can get that number. Because then we can hopscotch and move that chest piece to another search area and keep expanding and ever widening our efforts. What? Uh What's the longest you've ever spent on station for a rescue or recovery operation? A uh, rescue operation was probably nine days, uh, and that would have been a, actually a recovery operation. It was a search and rescue operation. Um, and then NIA search was the longest dive operation. Uh, usually we're only on station for one or two days just because the guys kick ass and they get stuff done. We had a great one in Kern County. Um where Kern County had searched for this guy for about two days and called us in. They were, they were in the wrong spot. wasn't their fault. They had bad intelligence and, and bad info from the family. And they had a cell phone of the drowning itself that was taken from the houseboat that all these people were on. But there were some computer glitches and they couldn't rip it off the phone. So finally, after our first day, we were like, this isn't making any sense. I don't think we're in the right spot. Our sonar is picking up everything on the bottom. There's no trees. It's just rocks and sand. Something doesn't make sense. And it was that afternoon, about three o'clock that they were finally able to get the video off of that. And we're like, yeah, we're not in the right spot. So what we did is we ripped the video, took stills out of it. And the next day came back in the morning, did a reverse triangulation of where we thought that boat was. It took us about 45 minutes, and we dropped the buoy. Our buoy 
that we dropped saying the boat was right here was 50 feet from the body. That entire operation, once we got our correct um, search area, took us like an hour and a half, and we brought him home. Yeah, and that's damn so that impressive. That was another one that's just like when it all comes together, it was just sweet. Right. Loved it. Right. Yeah. So proud of the guys. Got to be there, especially as they're as they're. Uh, the uh, commanding officers, their supervisor, there's, you just, again, you got to have that, that like hot damn, that's my team. Oh yeah. I was gushing. I almost teared up at the debrief. I was just so proud of these guys. It was rad. Now are, are these, uh, are these, uh, rescue divers, these, these SAR team members in the SDRT, uh, Swift, Swift water dive rescue team. Are they, is that their exclusive job within the sheriff's department? Or are these guys coming in off of off of detectives and they're coming in off patrol to then don their their wetsuits or dry suits and kick ass? Or are they just exclusively SAR team members? I wish we were exclusively tar, SAR team members, as do all of them. <laughs> but no, ancillary duty for us in Tulare County. So I have guys that are assigned to our detentions divisions. I have guys who are on SWAT and narcotics. I have guys who are in VC. I have guys who are just on patrol. So all ancillary, all by call out. And, uh, you know, you got to give it, you got to take your hat off to these guys in all agencies who not only fulfill their primary job assignment, but are always on call and at the drop of a hat have to take off from birthdays, holidays, wedding anniversaries, whatever it is, when the, when the call comes in, um, and just be dedicated to that. Um, they don't get any hazard, any hazard pay for any of this kind of stuff. So there's no detective pay incentive that comes along with these teams. They do get paid, um, double time when they're in the water on an op. Um, but that's about it. Well, they're off. doing it because they love it. Absolutely. I mean, that's, and I, I would say that you don't get into, uh, a job that demands that much of you, uh, unless you truly do love it. I mean, I've, I maintain that law enforcement, uh, firefighting, being an, an ER nurse or an ER doc driving an ambulance, those are jobs that are well and true callings otherwise you simply it's not a very difficult math equation to look at the job that we do and go well that looks stupid but i'm gonna go (laughs) i'm gonna go and do it anyways because that's what i mean for me at least i I, and i think i talked to my uh i was talking to my brother-in-law about this uh because he's also in, in law enforcement and you you take a look at at certain people uh you know hopefully hopefully the vast majority of your organization and you go i can't imagine them doing anything else and i don't think that the people on your dive team could imagine themselves doing anything else either. No, couldn't agree with you more. And myself included. Um, it is just such a calling and a passion that you, you can't, you can't train that into somebody. They have to really want it and they have to love it. So. Right. Right. I mean, that's the only way that they're going to push themselves, uh, through, I don't even say you push yourself to your limit, but through your limit, you push yourself through your barriers and you keep going is because you want that more than you want anything else. Yep. And it's that whole, you know, get, get comfortable being, uh, being uncomfortable. Yep. Well said, Kev. The, uh, uh, you'd mentioned ROVs a little earlier. So I'm curious, uh, just for, for your, I, I have a sneaking suspicion. I know what the answer is going to be, but I had, uh, once, uh, done a little bit of research, you know, as a, I'm, I'm st- I still four years in, I still consider myself to be a new officer, but I've done a little bit of research and cost benefit and whatnot on uh, a helicopter, like a joint agency helicopter. And the, what I was told by uh, uh, 
just another officer, not anybody in, in admin or commander like that was, well, UAVs are going to take the position of helicopters. Do you think that the ROV, your remote un- or yeah, your remote operated vehicles, the little remote control submarines, for lack of a better term, will the ROVs ever replace human divers, or you think you're always going to put a body in the water? Um, I think we're always going to put a body in the water. Um, the ROVs are pretty good, but they're a tool to complete an operation in its totality. Um, so our ROV is about I don't know. It's about probably weighs about 50 pounds. It is about two feet long by a foot wide. Um, so it's not a big giant thing. It's got full side scan on it itself. It's got full video, full underwater lights, um, drives pretty good, but it can't really operate in a big heavy current and it can only lift up about maybe 10 pounds. So you're not really going to recover anything of substantial weight like a body or even a firearm with that thing without breaking it. Um, the claw will hold about 25 pounds, so we can latch onto something and hold it on station, but we're not really bringing stuff to the surface with it. What we use it for is target confirmation. So side scan sonar deploys, we find something that we really like, we buoy it off, um, we take a targeting buoy and basically the boat guys start walking that thing into where our target is and they've gotten so good at that our last recovery they put the buoy right on top of the guy's chest it was pretty cool um so then we splash the rov just to make sure that it is what it is that that's our uh, drowning victim that we're looking for and the rov will grab onto a wrist or a foot or a piece of clothing whatever they can get on and it'll just sit right there the diver now gets to go straight down that umbilical and boom, he's at his target and we can achieve what we need to achieve. Back in the old days, we would send multiple divers in at a time and they're in black water, they're swimming together, they're bumping into each other. Probability of detection is like zero because they can't concentrate on what they're doing. Huge gaps in the search area. Um, so it was always a mess. By having this new technology, we are able to keep all of our personnel super safe and um, get things done way faster. But I don't think that they're going to completely replace the rescue diver. Yeah. I, I, and I figured that, that you'd say something along those lines. I completely agree with you. I mean, you're looking at it from, again, I don't have any, any dive operations in my area, but um, we've rolled out a handful of, of UAVs um, within our department with people who've gone through the FAA training. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we've, the we've used them operationally you know they they will help us because uh, again you can stick the things up at, at 200 feet and get a much wider field of view if you're looking for you know the 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 kid who's run away from home um or uh you know hey we're looking for this car in this area you know we think it's in this neighborhood and you can fly a uav over it uh, a lot quicker we we use it on a felony stop uh of uh, mo- uh so sus- suspected committed multiple armed robberies across like two counties, like four or five jurisdictions. Um, and before we even sent a dog in and for the longest time, like, okay, we think we've cleared that car. Okay. Send the dog in, which is, I mean, I've never been a canine handler, but that dog is just as much of a teammate as, as somebody with two legs on it. Um, totally. And even before we'd even thought about sending a dog, the, the UAV operator was like, Hey, standby. I'm just going to fly the truck real quick. Like we've done all of our call outs. Uh, let me go at least 
stick a camera in the windshield and see if I can see anything. Anybody's ducking down behind a seat or anything like that. So, um, but I don't think you're ever going to replace, uh, you know, boots on the ground type of thing. And I don't ever think you're really going to replace a helicopter. Like you said, without, without air support, it'd take you three hours to get some of these places. Well, as it stands right now, there's currently no UAV that's going to pick up your entire dive team and fly them over the mountains to get them to a remote, you know, water entry point. So. No, not at all. And, you know, our sheriff in Tulare County is really progressive and he's always out in front of stuff, whether it be technology or policy. Um, and we actually started one of the first UAV programs in the United States that was modeled after a canine program. So we would have UAV cars on every patrol beat 24 hours a day. And they were these big, they still are these big $25,000 um, Matrice um, platforms that are custom built for us and they have everything on them from FLIR to everything else. Um, but they deploy just like a canine and it's, it's actually pretty cool. We've used them in a lot of different operations. Yeah. I think, uh, I think being a UAV pilot is going to be on my, my short list of things to do in my career. Uh, who knows, man, I may, I may get through a handful of investigations and be like, that's it. This is what I was built for. I'm not going to do anything else. Um, uh, one thing I, I, I kind of wanted to touch on, and it's come up just in the, in the past week with me in my new spot is, um, even now you're, you're a Lieutenant. Now you've been a part of the dive unit, um, for pretty much as long as you've been in the agency. Is there something to be said for, um, for sticking in it, uh, you know, your entire, uh, career versus, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can have somebody who's like, Hey, I think I'm going to jump into the dive team for a few years. And then, Oh, I want to go over to the aviation unit. Oh, and then I want to go over and do this, which there's not an, anything inherently wrong in wanting to, to get a little taste of every part of the department. But I would assume that in something with a high danger level and that high stress factor and all the training that's required, you probably do your level best to keep your team just a part of that dive unit. Can they go up in, in, you know, can they get promoted from deputy to, to sergeant and still be a part of the team? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, our culture in the department department wide is to really make sure that everybody's well-rounded. So, you know, you can find yourself moving from unit to unit every two, three years or so. So, you know, I've been in patrol, detentions, patrol, SWAT, narcotics, investigations, back to patrol as a sergeant, back to SWAT as a sergeant, uh, internal affairs, our emergency services division, which is all the cool um, aviation, boats, SAR, dive, UAV, all that kind of stuff. Um, patrol lieutenant and now patrol or uh, investigations lieutenant. So you're always bouncing around and you're always gaining more experience and you're always learning and growing. And I think that's a good solid business plan, but it has to change when you talk about specialty teams. And it takes me about two years to get a diver fully functional and ready to go. So you've got to think about that. You can't have personnel bouncing around. So when we select you for this dive team, you know, going in because you're told in your first interview by all the senior divers that are sitting there grilling you that this is a huge commitment in both time and energy and education and commitment. And if you're not ready for it, there's the door um, because it does take us so long to make you that super Billy badass that you're going to be and you're going to be it. Um, but that's all up to you. So, no, I really like having my guys start out as young pups, 
start growing with the department through the department, but staying on the team and just getting more experience and more experience. And if you become a sergeant, you're going to stay on the team. And now you're a supervisor on that team. Um, me as a lieutenant, you know, I've done it the entire, I've done that my entire career. So I started as a deputy, then as a detective, um, and all on the Swiftwater team, Swiftwater Dive Rescue team, um, became the sergeant. Now I'm the lieutenant. So I am grooming my guys to be the next lieutenant. Because one day I'm going to go to captain and I may lose scope of command on this team. Who knows? Right. right. Hope not, but we'll see. Well, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta chart the, uh, chart the waters as it were. Uh, yeah. And hopefully I would, I would venture to guess your team probably wants to keep you around. Maybe they can lobby, uh, lobby pretty hard to, to keep you involved in that. Um, what, uh, just kind of getting back. Uh, I, I do promise we're going to jump into black mass divers here shortly, but I, one question that I'm sure you get asked all the time, because I think every cop gets asked this, but do you have any like super strange dives where you, you look back on it and you go, what the fuck was that? Um, no, not really. I wish I had a, that, that alien story, but, um, no, I just don't. <laughs> I, I was, I was just curious. You ever, you've ever been down there and like, yeah, there's a catfish the size of a Volkswagen. That was different. So. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the coolest things that I've ever dove was, um, with the giant black sea bass in California, um, off the coast of Catalina. So these things are about the size of cows. And they're a bass. They're huge. They, you could literally put your head and shoulders in this thing. Um, and to be able to see one is like a rare treat. It's like seeing a shark underwater. Um, seen lots of those. But when you get to dive with these big black sea bass, it's actually pretty darn cool. Well, now I've, so I've my, uncle, times. my uncle's been trying to get me to dive Catalina with it. Again, I haven't, I haven't dove in several years i would need one hell of a refresher course but uh i think next time i'm out in california we should try and try and set up a few days to where i can get my uh get my legs underneath me again my my sea legs as it were and then uh and then dive catalina because he's been trying to get me to do it for like i said at least i would 10 years he's been trying to get me to come out and dive catalina it's just never never happened so um let's go brother absolutely that, that- that, that's my home dive site. So I've right. been diving there as a, since a kid, and I know. It. So so in front of the casino there on Catalina, that's the Catalina Dive Park, and it's one of the most pristine and most awarded places to dive in all of the United States. So that is the place to go, and I know that park like the back of my hand. So we're going to show you wrecks and boats down there and all sorts of cool reefs environments the topography is amazing let's do it I, I like it man i'm gonna have to get used to it being so cold the last dive i did was in bora bora where it's like bathtub temperature water like you're in a rash guard and, and board shorts and catalina, yeah. catalina you've got to be in like the thickest wetsuit you can find yeah if it gets to 70 degrees you're lucky yeah yeah well um the uh really what led us uh to this moment in time is uh your organization black mask divers um before we before we start um every now and then if i'm interviewing uh somebody and and they've got one hell of a cool social media page i will say what drew what what drew me to to you is when i looked at your website 
And I'm pretty sure on there at the bottom of the page, it says very clearly that you don't like bullshit. And I'm like, that's it. This guy's my new best friend because this is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is a pretty <laughs> solid website. Um, but you do have, uh, a post on there. I just wanted to read it today. Uh, it takes a team and the team is always stronger than the individual. You are a coalition. You are public safety and professional divers, professionals in your trade, honorable in your commitment, exemplary in courage, be proud of what you do and represent your craft, dive safe, dive often. What led to the creation of a badass public safety diving, public safety diving organization? It's been a really cool road and, and i have to say that of course it all started with with being one of these guys um, being a public safety diver for so long but the true inspiration didn't really hit me until i became a corporate instructor with dive rescue international um so when we started rebuilding our team many years ago uh, we had a lot of deficiencies and we needed to address them because it was only a matter of time that we were going to have a a near miss and an oops, we hurt somebody moment. So we started doing some training on our own, not even department sanctioned. One of the first classes I ever went to was the Dive Rescue International DR1 program, which is basically your foundational course for how to put on to put on a public safety diving operation, a search operation, and how to start being a public safety diver. And what I quickly realized is we were doing it all fucking wrong. Um, and it was the light bulb went off. Um, met some really cool people in that class, um, and especially one of the instructors, Jeff Morgan, who is one of the senior guys over at Dive Rescue International, and was blessed enough to have him kind of take me under his wing. Um, and with that, I started becoming, started gaining more certifications through DRI, and they pretty much reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to become a corporate instructor? And I was like, hell yeah, I do. I'm sitting here looking at all my heroes at this company who are the best in the industry, and now I'm kind of getting pulled in to be one of them and stand beside them. And it was truly one of the most humbling and most biggest honors of my entire career was to become a corporate instructor for those guys. So did that and then started um, training teams all across the all across California and even traveling outside of California. And it was just really cool. And what I kept seeing is these individuals who have a passion for this industry, but nobody represents them. And that was where the impotence kind of shown up. So it was totally born out of a passion for public safety diving and water rescue and recovery operations. There's so many companies out there for LE and fire and military, et cetera. We really wanted to bring recognition to the exceptional men and women of public safety diving. And our vision was pretty simple, just to create some awesome gear and show appreciation of our profession, build a coalition of those divers and um, do something for them. And that in itself with BMD has been another like lifelong best fulfilling thing that we've ever done. It's been such a hoot. Um, putting this company together, watching it grow, watching the community grow, having the response that we're getting. It's just been fucking great. And uh, do you have, I mean, is it, you you started out of your garage, right? Just as all, I mean, Apple started out of the garage, right? So you've got, uh, you've got that going for you. You're uh, potentially <laughs> at the helm of a multi-billion dollar business. <laughs> so, um, what, what is the, what, 
if uh, if you could say if you if you could say you know what this is where X is where I want this company to be uh, in however many years is there an ultimate goal or is it sort of a, a dynamic and ever shifting and ever changing uh, mission set? I don't. It's dynamic, um, but it's not really a changing mission set. So I think our ultimate goal is, and we're we're starting to come to the realization of that this year here in 2021 is starting to build gear and equipment for public safety divers because again there's a deficit within the industry i all too often see teams that are forced to use recreational dive gear to perform professional operations um don't get me wrong they're using some of the best gear out there Uh, we all use tech gear um it's fantastic stuff but there's nothing that really caters specifically to this industry and that's the vision um, of the future for us is to start making gear and equipment for the mission for the guys that do it and what and um oh sorry go ahead it's happening so no it's happening so it's been it's really cool and is that uh are are all of your guys uh are they uh oh hey boss can you get me one of those t-shirts and uh is it is it a lot of uh i would imagine your team's fairly supportive in in your endeavor yeah, um, there was a, there was a lot of BMD swag on the pool deck yesterday. <laughs> it, it, it was pretty cool to see. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll go to another team, whether it be like Fresno County or the Kern County guys or up north, and to have them rocking our gear, it's just it's pretty cool. It, it's very humbling, very fulfilling. Um, but yeah, the company's growing really well. Um, started out in a bedroom in an office. And we've quickly outgrown that. And we just started a um, partnership with Industry Threadworks and Ryan Williams down in San Diego, ex-Navy SEAL. And he's going to start helping us out with all of our fulfillment and, and shipping and uh, some production stuff as well. And super excited to do that. My wife is super excited to get it out of our house. Yeah. <laughs> my, I've been told something similar about my podcast. I'm currently using the front room of our house, and my wife goes, well, you know, when we have a second child, your podcast room is going to have to go somewhere. I was like, well, shit. <laughs> so, right? <laughs> so I, uh, my, my wife would probably be able to sympathize with your wife. <laughs> and, and bless both their hearts. Hey, neither of us would. Hey, neither of us would be here if it wasn't for them. Amen, brother. I mean, they. You know, they're out there. uh, You know, gracious enough to let us uh, let us chase these dreams. And I I will say that uh, uh, you know, each of us with our own paths. That we've got the coolest fucking jobs on the plate on the face of the earth, man. It's a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And where else are you going to get paid to do the things that we get to do? Um, Hell yeah. And I don't. You know down to the, you know, the brand new patrol officer, uh, you know, the helicopter pilots, the, the SAR dive rescue guys, the SWAT team, uh, the canine handlers. Uh, that seems to be one thing that, that is prevailing is that, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty damn lucky to have our jobs. Um, there 2020 was a hell of a year, uh, for everyone, uh, everyone in law enforcement, uh, you know, across the, across the board. Uh, but I think even now still, um, even throughout last year, uh, we were probably all still sitting there. And at least I would hope to some level, uh, we were still thinking, you know what? I'm still pretty damn lucky to do what I do. Yeah. And 21 is going to be a shit show too. Don't think it's not. Oh yeah. No, we're already um, there. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. But, but you're so right. You know, these young kids and I, and I say to everybody getting into the business, 
stay forward focused. And if you see something that there's a niche in our industry, because there's a lot of them, just go for it, man. Um, always, always look forward and always take that calculated risk because you never know where it's going to lead you. You know, I, I, looking at my law enforcement career, I never would have thought that BMD was going to be something that would happen 14 years from then. Um, but it's just these roads that we travel and you just got to put your foot in the water and jump into the pool every now and then fucking rock it out. Well, it's like, uh, it's like it's on your website. Go do dangerous shit, right? You got it. And then, and sometimes, sometimes those of you out there listening that are, that are, again, this podcast, I, I started it, uh, as a result of, of some of the higher profile, uh, in custody death cases from last year, because I was sitting there constantly bitching just like every other cop. And then I thought to myself, well, what can I do? Well, I've, Nobody's ever told me I'm too quiet. So you know what? I can fucking talk about things and, and try and get some education out there. And if you're out there and you're listening and you're thinking about going into law enforcement, um, when we say go do dangerous shit, uh, or rather when, when, you know, when Black Mass Divers says go do dangerous shit, don't be reckless about things. Right now, the dangerous thing for you is taking the leap into the career of law enforcement, into the career of, uh, you know, firefighting or medical um or teaching, whatever the case may be, that that go do dangerous shit is just sometimes it's just taking the first fucking step. The well said, hundred percent. So, um, well, we have been. This has been a, a good hour and a half, man. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, yeah, it's gone fast. It has gone fast, hasn't it? I, I uh, uh, we timed it perfectly. Uh, I had asked, I had asked Kevin to, uh, hey, let's shoot for noon, and then at about nine o'clock Arizona time this morning, I went. Oh, daylight savings. Noon in Arizona is not noon in California, but it worked out because my kid was, uh, uh, my wife put him down for a nap. So hopefully he hasn't been screaming at her uh, and yelling at her uh, for the past hour and a half because he's uh, a little over one year old now. And that's what he does when he's unhappy is he tells you he's unhappy, but he doesn't know the words for it. So <laughs> um, uh, actually that is, so, do you have, do you have kids, Kev? Yeah, I've got an adult son um, through my marriage and he's in uh, splits. He's in the, um, music industry splits his time between Atlanta and Nashville. And he's a oh, very cool. rock star and a pretty amazing human being. Does he, he uh, does he get in the water with you at all? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's nothing more fun and you'll realize this when the little guy grows up a little bit more, but there's nothing better than diving with your family. So my kid's an advanced diver. My wife is a master diver and we try to get in the water. My wife and I try to get in the water a couple times a year, but even when Josh comes home, we, always try to get in the water together good yeah it's that that family time that that work-life balance and it's it's good that uh uh, earlier you'd said your guys tell you that you suck all the fun out of diving but it's good that you can still you you truly are doing what you love i mean it's one of those things that you look at it and you go i seriously get paid to do this (laughs) i'm having fun out here like i'm and even on the more serious operations it's it's diving is your passion it may not be quote unquote you know fun with with what we think of it's certainly it's not fun to know that you're going to go and pull somebody's uh family member you know we talk about rescue versus recovery it's you're not rescuing that person uh you are recovering that person and getting them home but you're still doing what you've had a lifelong passion for. And there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to have dinner um, with one of my mentors, um, Richard Sadler, who's the medical director for DRI. And he started talking about a concept called the zone of genius. And it's not that you're the smartest guy in the room, 
but it's that you get to do what you love the most. And because of that, that's part of your genius and makes you smarter and better um, throughout your life. And I couldn't agree with any of it more. Yeah, and I'm absolutely. To be able to be doing what I consider my zone of genius. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as we come to a close here, uh, the, uh, the kind of the last question I ask all my guests is you literally have a microphone to the world. Um, I, tr- I am astonished to find out that there's at least one person in Brazil listening to this podcast. So it is Sweet. truly an international show now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got a microphone to the world. What, uh, what does Kevin Kemmerling want to say to the world? I just want everybody to take pause, especially in these crazy times, you know, get your head out of your phone and think about what's important. Have a bit of introspection, stop being so subjective about everything and know what you know and be good to each other and stop with all the nonsense because we have to come back as human beings and we have to come back especially here in the United States as a country. And I think it's admirable that everybody wants to change the world, but start with yourself. Hell yeah. I don't even have anything to add to that. I'm going to put that on a plaque somewhere and uh, put it on a t-shirt and, and we're going to need to just sell that out to people. Cause that is uh that's one hell of a message to, to share out. And I think there's a lot, uh, you know, just within the, that, that couple of sentences that everybody in even even us man we just got to take pause be thankful for what we have um and maybe look inward before we go looking outward yeah if you ever aspire to be a leader out there everybody it starts with humility absolutely and even even the you know the highest uh the highest form of leadership just uh you know a couple couple episodes ago i talked about being the professional new guy uh even even when you get to those those higher levels of leadership don't don't uh, be afraid to learn something new every day. Yep. Well, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, and take us out here, Kev. This has been a, another episode of Blue Line Millennial. Stay safe. We'll see you on the road.